Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Mark chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 1 through 23. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark together now for a couple of months. Mark is unique when you compare it to the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. Um, Mark is unique in that it tends to focus more on the miracles of Jesus um, than the message. Um, The other ones, Matthew and Luke, kind of have a good balance. John's definitely more about the message that Jesus taught. Now, even here in Mark, as we've seen these miracles, the message is always there. Jesus never performed a miracle. Um, Jesus never uh, performed healing without also providing the word of God, which, uh, which would give an even greater and more eternal, more lasting healing. And so there's a couple of miracles here at the end of chapter seven we'll look at next week. But this morning, we've got a really rare teaching section from the Gospel of Mark, a a teaching section that Jesus had with three different groups of people. First of all, the religious leaders, and then just with a general congregation that used to follow him around to hear his teaching and, and to witness his miracles. And then also he had a special kind of teaching moment with his disciples at the end of our passage that Lydia read for us this morning. In verses one to five, we, we see the matter at hand. There was an inspection going on. If you look at verse one, it says, then came together unto him, unto Jesus, the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. So the Pharisees and certain scribes, scribes were legal professionals, uh, lawyers concerning Jewish law. Well, they came up to the area Jesus was from Jerusalem. If you remember, Jesus is ministering in that area known as the Gennesaret, northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, kind of been his home base for operations where Capernaum is. And um, the top religious leaders in Jerusalem, they send up, I guess you could say, everything in Israel is down because Jerusalem's on a high point, but they send their uh, a delegation to inspect Jesus and what he and his disciples were doing. And inspect is probably a kind word because we know from the rest of this passage, uh, we get a sense that what they did was the typical uh, pharisaical, hypocritical um, type of thing. That was their motivation for this inspection. At the end of verse two, it says that they found fault. Well, of course they did. They found it because that's what they went there looking for. You know people like this? Always finding fault? Most of the time because that's what they're looking for. Look, there's absolutely nothing wrong with inspecting or evaluating a ministry, a minister, or a church even. We're taught in Scripture to do so. We are. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, uh, speaks of the Bereans, and God calls them there more noble because they we're very careful to evaluate what Paul was telling them, make sure it lined up with Scripture. So that's a good, a good example of good motivation uh, for us evaluating and inspecting uh, a work of God or a ministry. But um, we find out here that that's not the motivation in Mark 7 of the Pharisees. After hearing about all the miracles that Jesus did, 
And after uh, hearing about, sometimes seeing how lives were being radically transformed by Jesus' message, especially in a way that their own dead, heartless religion had failed to do, the, the powers that be in Jerusalem, they sent this, this group to find fault, to discredit what God was doing through Jesus and his disciples. And man, Satan just loves to work through people like these. Um, Hopefully you're not one, but you might know one. Got nothing good to say ever. <laughs> um, not got nothing good to do, really, other than complain about what's being done or how it should be done or why it can't be done instead of actually doing anything. Uh, and they're here attacking the clearly evident work of God. Um, and typically, even now, we see exactly what happened here. If there's any fault found, it's in some little petty, uh, inconsequential thing, some personal opinion, as opposed to an actual violation of God's word or his will. That's the case here. Let's look at the violation in verse 2. It says, And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashing hands, they found fault. They found fault. Um, now, don't take from this verse that the disciples were being gross, are unhygienic. They weren't. Uh, Mark describes in verses three to four, it's a, a parenthetical insert. He puts it in there for people like you and me. Mark wrote to a predominantly Gentile audience, and so they might not understand all of the little ins and outs of Jewish ceremonial religion. And so he describes for them and for you and I here, he says in verse three, uh, for the Pharisees, all the Jews, except that they wash their hands often, they eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. For the Pharisees, uh, when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. All right, and so what this indicates for us is that, you know, the quote-unquote violation of verse 2, it was not a, a violation of God's word. It was an infraction against man-made uh, Jewish ceremonial law. In your home, uh, as parents, you probably instruct the kiddos to wash up before a meal, sometimes spouses instruct their husbands to wash up before a meal. That's just basic hygiene. Um, and that's what the disciples were, were supposedly guilty of, though, is not that. It's, it's in not going through all of the ritualistic religious rigmarole that all the Jewish leaders, um, not God, but all the Jewish leaders had instituted that everybody needed to do. Now, God had told them to do it. In the Old Testament, he said, look, if you're going to come and worship me, if you're going to serve in the temple, in the tabernacle, uh, as, as uh, the priests, you've got to go through this process. He had a point in it. He wanted to remind the priests that they were not holy, as Daphne sang about, to remind how much holier God is, and to symbolize how we need to make ourselves uh, holy and follow God in that way. Um, but they extended it not to just them, they said, well, if it's good for the priest, it's good for the people. Everybody needs to do this, and they need to do it a bunch of times. And by the time, now we got hundreds of years since then, uh, now it's extended more and more just like the Pharisees like to do. They add to God's law. They would put a fence around God's law. If God said this is the commandment, they'd extend it to make sure nobody could possibly violate it ever. 
In verse 5, they bring the accusation of this horrendous violation. They bring it straight to Jesus. They say to him, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashing hands? Now, that's the second time already in just five verses we've seen the tradition of the elders. Five times in this passage, that's the focus. Tradition, five times. So I can't, when I was studying this this week, I couldn't help but think of Tevia and Filler on the Roof singing about tradition. Tradition's not a bad thing, is it? Not necessarily. It becomes bad when we embrace tradition over truth, and that's what was going on here. What does it say there in verse five? Well, this is a complaint, taking it to Jesus. How come they don't walk? How come they don't live according to the tradition of the elders. They're at least honest enough here to to say, well, this is not the word of God. It's the tradition of the elders. Well, Jesus is going to answer their question. But first of all, he responds a little bit different. He goes to the heart of the matter in verses 6 to 13. He highlights two underlying problems behind their accusation, behind their question that they present to him in verse 5. And Jesus, first of all, addresses their primary problem. Verse 6, he says this. Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people, they honoreth me with their lips, with their heart, their heart is far from me. Now, at first glance, it might look like Jesus is deflecting here, not answering their uh, accusation and instead pointing fingers back at them. Uh, That wouldn't be correct. What he does in his response, it's integrally connected to their accusation, uh, to their attitude and to their affections. What he's telling them is, guys, you got a, you got a heart problem. In verse six, he, he powerfully contrasts (laughs) their devotion to man-made, fallible, according to the tradition of the elders' rules that we saw in verse 5, and, and he takes them straightway to the word of God, the thing that, that is authoritative, the thing that they should be living by, the infallible, unchanging word of God. He answers them with God's word, not man's, and he selects a verse that's a, a pretty stinging application of their primary problem. It's a heart problem. Um, he's telling them, look, this is what happens when you embrace tradition over truth. You honor me with your lips, but your heart, your heart's far from me. That's not a new problem. That's not a rare uh, disease. It's a, a, a heart problem that's universal to mankind. Every single one of us has at some time experienced this heart condition, this heart problem. Um, ever since Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, there's not been a single person in this world that hasn't had to face this. Uh, what it, what it does, it manifests itself this way, this heart problem. Uh, you get a desire for religion because you know you have a need. You know you need to fix something here, and you'll have a desire for religion, but not so much relationship. That's asking a little too much. Uh, an embrace of ritual over relationship. Uh, you, you're good with going through the motions so that I might feel better about myself instead, instead of coming to grips with my desperate, desperate need for a relationship with God, my desperate need for a savior. In verse seven, Jesus continues this uh, stinging indictment of their primary problem, a heart disease caused by sin and, and continued by pride. At the beginning of verse seven, he says, how be it in vain, they worship me because their, their heart is far from me. You know, they might be honoring me with their lips. They might be washing their hands 75 times a day before they eat, but your heart is far from me, and you're worshiping me in pointless performance of ritual. It's vain worship. How did they get 
this way? How, how, how is it that religious people even today are like this? Here's an even more important question because likely I'm preaching to people who are born again, followers of Jesus Christ. How is it that even sometimes Christians can fall into the same legalism, the same empty ritualism where we might find ourselves on any given day honoring God with our lips, but having hearts, sometimes even honoring God with our actions, but having a heart that's far from Christ. It's happened to churches. We've got the record here in the New Testament. You can go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 2, and Jesus starts writing letters to churches there. The very first one he addresses is the church at Ephesus. They were a busy church. They were involved in so many ministries, serving the Lord. Uh, They were a a doctrinally sound church. They stood on the word of God and stood against uh, false doctrines. But Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2 that he had something against them because they had left their first what? Love. They had left their first love. They had a heart problem. It happened to the early churches at Jude. A couple, about a year ago, we went through the epistle of Jude. Uh, Jude addresses a couple of churches in his epistle. In verse 16, he describes the false teachers that were plaguing the churches at that time. He says that they are grumblers and fault finders, just like we're seeing here. They're professing believers that are more concerned with teaching man-made doctrines and and enforcing man-made practices than actually loving Jesus and loving others in the name of Jesus. It happened to them, and it can happen to us if, if we do the same thing that Pharisees did, if we do the same thing that those struggling with this in the church of Ephesus did, and if we do the same thing that those churches in the book of Jude do. So the primary problem, it's, it's a heart problem, a desire to try to fix things with God, try to earn right standing before God on our own merits and all this ritual and religious performance instead of a relationship. And you know what that causes? It causes a secondary problem. Verse seven, if we read the second part, this is it. You teach for doctrines the commandments of men. Verse eight, you lay aside the commandment of God. And you hold the tradition of men as a washing of pots and cups, many other such things you do. He just gives them one example there. But he's saying, this is what you're doing. You're replacing the word of God. You're replacing it by setting it aside, laying it aside. And then you bring alongside your own traditions, your own doctrines, giving an equal standing with the word of God. And that's that's a problem there. That's their secondary problem, holding the doctrines and traditions of men, replacing God's word with those. In verse 8, Jesus highlights this man-made ceremonial uh, focus on washing of hands and pots and cups and many other such things. This is the evidence, the evidence that their still defiled heart is now further affected by false doctrines. These are man-made doctrines. In verse 9, says, And Jesus said unto them, full well, you reject the commandment of God so that you may keep your own tradition. When when we replace, just like they did, when we replace God's word with the doctrines and traditions of men, well, then we are doing what verse nine accuses them of doing. We're, We're not just replacing God's word, but we're actually rejecting it. That's what it says there in verse nine, full well, you reject the commandments of God. You're actually rejecting God's word as the exclusive, singular, uh, all-sufficient authority for how we are to think and what we're to say and and what we're to do. We replace and reject the the perfect and totally sufficient word of God with an imperfect and completely insufficient tradition 
of man. And so to fix this, Jesus takes them back to God's word. He's already done it once. He took them to Isaiah. Uh, He takes them to what is authoritative. Uh, Now in verse 10, he says, for Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother. Where did Moses say that? That's right in the middle of what? The 10 commandments. So, I mean, now these are people who love the law. Oh, they love the Torah. They love God's word. In fact, they live their whole lives by it. You know, and, and, um, that's what we, we call ourselves, I, I hope we are, Southern Baptist Convention. We, we're people of the book. That's what we call ourselves. That's what they thought they were as well. Um, and Jesus takes them right to the middle of the Ten Commandments. Exodus twenty twelve, honor thy father and thy mother. And chapter later, Exodus 21, 17, says the person that doesn't do this, if you curse your father or mother or don't honor your father or mother, uh, you are worthy of death. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 10. So God's pretty serious about that commandment, is he not? And you would think that these people of the book, these people who love God's word, who, who love to even put a fence around it so nobody would violate it, you would think that they would be pretty serious about it as well, especially if they're so concerned about somebody not washing their hands when that's not even part of God's commandments. But verses 11 and 12 tells us they weren't all that serious about one of the 10 commandments. I mean, this is basic stuff. What do they do there? Verse 11, but, but you say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that's a word for gift, meaning it is a gift, by whatsoever you mightest be profited by me, you shall be free, and you suffer him no more to do aught for his father and mother. What Jesus is explaining here is they have this tradition as well, that um, while they're supposed to be honoring their father and mother, and one way they would do that is when your father and mother got older and unable to provide for themselves, well, then the child was supposed to take money. They had money that was allocated, saved up, and it was designed, designated to honor their mother and father this way. But they could take it to a priest and say, this is a gift to God. I'm consecrating it to God. And the priest said, sounds good to me. And then take it and never spend it on their parents. In fact, spend it on whatever they wanted because they had dedicated it to God. So they, they would even charge or bill people, the Pharisees would. Like, yeah, I'll, we'll go with that. Give us a little cash. To, you know, for the temple, and you can, you can do that. Um, telling them they're free, it said in, in verse uh, 11. You're free from obeying this commandment. Man, what a twisted way to honor what God had commanded, clearly commanded, to honor your father and mother. So here's people that are so, so dedicated, supposedly, uh, to God's commandments that they even add to them, and they're not even obeying this basic one. In fact, they're doing something worse here Verse 13, you're making the word of God of none effect. It's bad enough that you've replaced the word of God and brought your traditions and doctrines to an equal standing and in so doing, rejecting God's word, but now you're actually restricting it. You're making the word of God of no effect, verse 13, through your tradition, which you have delivered. God didn't tell you to do it, you did. And many such, this is just one example. You do this repeatedly in how you um, serve My people, this is what he's telling the religious leaders at the time. From a hard heart, from a heart that's full of the disease of sin, from a heart that's content with just going through the motions of empty ritual, they had not only replaced God's word, they had not only rejected God's word, but in doing that, they've restricted it, stripped it of its power. That's what verse 13 is telling us. And not just for themselves, but, but for God's people. Look, uh, Dublin First Baptist Church and Southern Baptist Convention, we better hear and heed uh, this warning from Jesus about our primary problem. 
a heart that is diseased and depraved, and about a secondary problem, replacing and rejecting and restricting God's word and its role in our lives. We, we need to commit to never twist God's word to concede something that it doesn't, to say, this is allowed, as well as to command something it doesn't. We ought not ever do that as well. Third, there's a matter of the heart. Verses 14 and 23, now Jesus finally gets to explaining why their little, um, well, he says, this is why we don't wash our hands like, like you do. Uh, he tells his audience there that this is, uh, our focus should be on, on the heart. That should, that's what is most important to God. He returns to the heart disease issue. In verse 14, he says, listen up, basically. Hearken unto me, every one of you. And that would include us here this morning. And, and I want you to understand this. Verse 15, there's nothing, there is nothing from without a man that entereth into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things which defile a man. So he's explaining why this man-made ceremonial washing is much less important, uh, totally unnecessary, really, as compared to us guarding our hearts. He says nothing, nothing from the outside can defile us, but rather it's what comes from the inside. Now, we better make sure we understand what Jesus is teaching here in this very specific and particular application. It's about food. It's about making sure that things the Old Testament deemed unclean under Old Testament law, um, that that is what cannot defile us. To, to some degree, when Jesus says nothing here, it does not mean nothing. How do we know that? James 1.27, it tells us that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, all right? So we got 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, where God has Peter beg us, look, as sojourners, as exiles in this world, uh, you need to uh, abstain from the passions of the flesh and you need to keep your conduct before the lost as honorable. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. There Paul implores us, abstain from all, from all appearance of evil. So there are things outside of us that can impact negatively what's inside of us. Jesus isn't saying that. He's not saying it's unimportant to be guarded about outside things that could tempt us to yield to sin or, or take us away from our relationship with God. It's just that God wants us to know. He wants us to know that there's something way more important that should be our focus and that helps us be guarded. It's the condition of our heart. How do we do that? How do we guard it? How do we ensure that our heart is in the right, healthy, spiritual condition? In verses 17 to 20, Jesus reiterates the same lesson to his disciples. They, they break away from the big group and they're like, we really don't understand what you were saying there. We need, we need you to explain it to us, Jesus. And um, with patience, Jesus does that. Look, the disciples hadn't completely grasped what Jesus was saying. This is a massive paradigm shift. This was like a whole new way of doing things from what they knew. It wasn't a new way that God was doing things. It was a new way that the religious, what Jesus was saying, this is how I want to be worshiped. Like you, your Pharisees, your scribes have been telling you this way all the time and it's been incorrect. There was a, a level of cognitive dissonance going on there. Like when you know this is, you thought this was true your, your whole life and then all of a sudden you find out, I haven't been doing it the right way at all. And so they asked Jesus, we, we need you to explain it better to us, Jesus. And he, he does that. He tells him again, <laughs> verse 19, the reason it doesn't defile you is it, it, it doesn't go uh, into your heart, 
Where does the food that you're washing your hands for, where does it go? It goes into your belly, and then it leaves your body. And he said, verse 20, that which cometh out of the man, that, that's what defiles a man. Verses 21 to 23 gives us a long list of sins there. And he explains to them that, that a heart that is like what he described in verse six, it might honor God with the lips, but it's far from God. A heart like that, it cannot have good fruit come out of it. No, instead, uh, sins like are mentioned in, in verses 21 and 23, that's what quite naturally pours forth from a, a heart that has a, a bad heart condition. And it's quite a list, isn't it? I mean, look at that. Evil thoughts, that's where it all starts. Battle in the mind. But then from that, <laughs> adulteries and fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, big long list of things that come out of a heart that isn't right with God. Doesn't matter what empty ritual, what religion that you might subscribe to and what religious rituals you might perform. If your heart has not been changed, this is what's gonna happen. Wash your hands all you want, but if, but if these things pour out of a heart diseased with sin, a heart that's distracted by just going through the motions and performing empty rituals and religion, there's no amount of water, there's no amount of ritual that's gonna get you clean or fix this problem. We could bring it to our day. Like you can be in every church service, like every time our doors are open, and you can tithe, you can give above your tithes, you can sponsor a child in Moldova in the orphanage. You can serve in every ministry, teach Sunday school, help in Awana. You could chair every single committee at this church and still have a heart that's defiled and have these sins pour forth or, or be a part of your life all because of a, a bad heart. So what are we to do? What does Jesus suggest? What does God say that we're to do here in his world? Well, let, let me tell you that if you take care of the primary problem, all these secondary problems are taken care of. It'll take care of everything. The heart of the matter is it's, it's a matter of the heart. In James 3.12, Jesus said the same thing. Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No, it can't. We have farmers here, right? If Mr. Uh, Mr. Brisson, if he plants peanuts, what are you gonna get? Cotton? No, you're gonna get peanuts. You're gonna know it by their fruit. Uh, what we do and don't do, it's extremely important. That's actually the whole point of the book of James. Extremely important in our relationship with God. But you gotta take care of the cause to take care of the effect. Jesus said the same in Matthew 7, 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes don't come from thorn bushes. Figs don't come from thistles. And the point is that defilement, these sins like are listed here in verses 21 to 23, they come from a dead, defiled heart. But the opposite's also true. Righteousness, well, it comes from a righteous heart. The fruits of the Spirit, like are listened, uh, listed in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, those things come from a, a renewed heart, a heart that's been reconciled to God, a heart that has relationship with God. You get the right focus, you're gonna get the right fruit. You focus on the heart, this is gonna come. You get the right cause, you're gonna have the right effect. There's a big, big difference, and this is Jesus' main point here, between religion and relationship. Do you know what religion says? It says, I got a problem. Okay, you're right on that. I'm going to clean myself up so that God will accept me. Does that ever work? Never has, not once. That's the whole message of the gospel. What, what's the message of the gospel? What's the message of relationship? I got a big problem. Big problem. 
And the only person that can take care of it is Jesus Christ. And I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to have him forgive my sins. And by his grace, I'm going to have him make me clean. There's a big difference there, important difference there. So the way to cleansing from defilement and from sin the way to a relationship with God, if you don't have one, if you are a born-again believer, the way to a more deep, a more intimate relationship with God, it's not in working harder at a list of do's and don'ts. So many times that's what we try to do, but it's not. You know what it's in? Falling in love with Jesus Christ. That's the key. It's in falling in love with Jesus Christ. If you do that, you're gonna do the do's and you won't the don'ts. Just quite naturally, that's, that's how it works. If that will be your focus, the condition of our heart, the fruit is naturally going to come. Not washing, not religion, not ritual, no relationship, falling in love with Jesus Christ. And that's the paradigm shift from religion to uh, an empty ritual to, to relationship that, that Jesus gave us. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we come into relationship with God. And Christian, that's how you continue falling in love with Jesus Christ. That's how you continue to a deeper relationship. There might be somebody here or somebody watching this morning and um, oh, you, you might never have been made new from the inside out like we've learned here. Has there been a point in time in your life when you turn from sin? And here's more important thing. When you turn from your own efforts to try to fix the problem and, and you turned in faith to what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and you asked him to be your savior. You confessed your sin. You trusted that his death would do that. You trusted that his resurrection will give you new life and give you eternal life. If you've never done that, do it today. We're gonna have a time of invitation here. You don't need to wait for that. Do it wherever you are. Call out to him in your heart. Ask Christ to be your savior. Begin a relationship with Jesus today. Christian, you have done this already. But have you been struggling? We still struggle with sins. And you've been trying to fix things, wash yourself clean on your own and not doing so well, defilement and sin, uh, it can still seem to spring up and flow from us despite our own best efforts working in our own strength. If that's the case, confess that sin to him this morning and receive his full and free forgiveness and then plead with him, <laughs> plead with him. God, help me focus on my heart for a fruit that will glorify you. It's so important. Proverbs 4.23 it says, guard your heart with all diligence. I mean, guard it with all diligence. More than anything else you do in life, you devote this much attention to this and this much attention to that. This is the most important thing. Guard your heart with all diligence because everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 4.23. This is so important. And if we'll do that, if we will plead, God, help me to fall more and more in love with Jesus. Watch what happens when your primary problem is addressed. Watch what happens. He, when he takes care of your struggle with sin, when things that you used to be so in bondage to and you go, I don't want it no more. Jesus is better. No, I'm not doing that. Jesus is better. Look, Christian, he wants a deep relationship with you, an intimate one. And he did a lot to make sure that that could happen. But do you want it? Do you want it this morning? Does your heart want it? So as Tommy leads us in uh, Take My Life and Let It Be, I just encourage you to do business with God. However, God's using his Holy Spirit and his word today to call you to respond, obey him.